0: Suicide, New Earth, and the Flat Earth Society. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike.
1: He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. he got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life.
0: Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Really exciting show this week to me. It's the one year anniversary of the release of Finding God in the Waves, my first ever book, and uh, happened to come up in the answers for one of the questions this week. So, what do you say? Let's do a podcast. Let's get it started. Okay, this podcast should be coming out on Wednesday, September 13th, which means uh, you have very little time to get tickets for the Liturgist Gathering in Los Angeles on September 15th and 16th. I'm telling you, this event is going to be great. There are a couple dozen tickets left, so if you haven't got a ticket yet, there is still a little bit of time. And a few tickets available, but they are going fast. Uh, This could very well be a sellout event. Of course, if you're not in or around the Los Angeles area, don't worry. We've got you covered. October 6th and 7th, the Liturgist Gathering is happening in Boston. Oh, man, have we got some cool stuff planned for you, Boston. And uh, then October 27th and 28th, the Liturgist Gathering will head to Seattle. All the Liturgist Gatherings have surprise special guests. All of them. People you've heard on the podcast, people you love from the podcast, will be at these events. So I'd love to see you at the Liturgist Gathering. Just go to theliturgistgathering.com for more information. October 11th, I will do an Ask Science Mike live in London. October the 13th in Birmingham uh, in the United Kingdom, not Alabama. October 17th, I'll see you in Edinburgh for Ask Science Mike Live. And October 21st, I will be at the Rubicon Conference in Dublin, Ireland. So UK friends, plenty of chances to come see me. Tickets available for all those events right now online. Just go to asksciencemike.com, click on events, you can get more information, and grab your tickets. I'd love to see you in these events. And then in November, November 15th, I will be at the Ripple Effect Conference in Lawrence, Massachusetts. So, one more chance to see me in 2017. 2018 is already starting to book up. So, if you've thought about bringing me in to your church or college or conference or community, I'm available, but don't wait too long. Uh, slots do fill up fast. Go to AskScienceMike.com, click on speaking, and you can contact the folks at Chafee Management who can tell you all about bringing Science Mike to your town. So that's enough about events. Let's do some questions.
1: Hey Mike, Chris here from Texas. So I don't know if you're like me, but I've been getting into a lot of conversation with friends about how the Earth is actually flat. No idea why this has gotten popular lately, but... Give me some quick pointers on (laughs) proving that the earth is indeed round and that we will not fall off if we get to the edge.
0: Thanks. I have noticed with some dismay the increasing number of questions about a flat earth coming into the program, and I absolutely do like covering science questions on this program. That's why I started the podcast, was actually for science questions, faith questions, and the advice and life questions just sort of happened. Um but this is this is not a science question I love answering uh because it seems strange that in 2017 there is any debate over whether the earth is round or not. Uh this is not new knowledge. This is not poorly justified scientific insight that the earth is round as opposed to flat. Um you know, sure. There's a lot of ways you can demonstrate that the world is round, that the Earth's surface is curved. I've got a link to ten methods from Popular Science in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Uh, some of those, you know, watching a ship sail over the horizon, it doesn't get smaller and smaller and smaller, become a point if the ship is large enough and the view clear enough. Instead, <laughs> ship sails over the horizon, vanishes like it's falling off the edge, Um, and that's because the Earth is round. Uh, Another thing, comparing the position of constellations uh, at the same time from different points on the Earth's surface, uh, what you see only makes sense if the Earth is round, a dome over a flat disk, would not produce this kind of pronounced effect geometrically. Nor would, for example, Polaris, the North Star, uh, be invisible from the southern hemisphere. Uh, (laughs) If you had just a dome over a flat disk, grab a sheet of paper, draw it for yourself. This is not complicated science. Because the ancients figured this out. They didn't need NASA... They didn't need rocket ships. They used their own senses and reasoning and pre-scientific approaches that ultimately led to the scientific method, mathematics, geometry. Now here's the bad news. Something as pervasive and powerful as the night sky probably won't convince your friends the truth of the Earth's spherical nature. Why? Because a flat earth worldview is a conspiracy theory. This, this rise of flat earth belief is so endemic of the post-fact, post-truth culture that we're living in. And this stems from the same well, believe it or not, as climate change denial or labeling anything you disagree with as fake news when fake news is an actual measurable phenomenon because I think it all started when scientific insight started to be politicized. So, for example, carbon emissions warm the climate, came to have political implications. And in response, a cottage industry was built in right-wing media that started to divorce It's audience from a consensus about reality. Let's just create a new reality. Let's use a separate set of facts, quote facts, not actual facts, but let's call them facts to construct a new worldview, fundamentally incompatible with the other. This is dangerous. This is scary stuff. You know, it used to be the parties had the same blind spots, you know. The left and the right both ignored white supremacy, for example, but on matters of, you know, what does science say about an issue? Both parties basically respected scientific insight uh, within the aforementioned uh, social constraints about white supremacy. And uh, that's where we are now. Everybody, based on their social identity and their personally curated uh, media, believe what they're tribe believes. Now conspiracy theories are especially alluring because they make you feel like an enlightened insider surrounded by the ignorant masses. It is psychologically gratifying. And it it creates some interesting partners. Interesting partners. We have kind of some of the anti-science alt-right promoting a flat earth ideology along with like prominent professional athletes including athletes of color. Both of these ideologies, flat Earth ideologies, are driven not by a set of uh, scientific facts or interpretive lenses, but instead a fundamental distrust of the establishment and authority of which NASA becomes emblematic. So you're not going to scientifically reason your flat Earth friends into enlightenment about the shape of the Earth. Um, it's actually going to require a more fundamental approach reconciling why they are drawn to this hidden knowledge, where their fundamental distrust of how our institutions comes from. Now, don't get me wrong. I have all kinds of mistrust towards authority uh, structures in our society. I'm deeply concerned about police violence. I'm deeply concerned about state surveillance. My uh, civic role in America is not one that lacks critique of American systems, processes, or institutions, but that doesn't mean I disregard literally everything that comes from the government that I say every study can't be validated. A government study uh, should undergo and does undergo the same peer review process as something that comes from a university. I fundamentally have confidence in the scientific method as a way to reveal facts about reality, and that is not universal today. (laughs) It seems like it's less universal than it was a few years ago, which is frightening. Uh, So I'd encourage you to check out the How Do We Know What We Know episode of the Liturgist podcast, as well as the fake news and media literacy episodes. Now, that's going to be a couple hours of listening, but I think that's going to equip you to have these kinds of conversations with your flat-earth friends. Reporting live from a spinning, spherical object in space, it's Science Mike. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hi Mike, I'm a new listener to the podcasts, having just finished reading and enjoying Finding God in the Waves about a week ago. Loved the book and I think stances similar to your open and honest one on discussing issues of importance are needed in the 21st century. I have one question about the book that's been nagging me, though. Okay, I'll just interrupt you. Just one is impressive. People usually have more than one question. (laughs) Back to your letter. At the end, you write, Science gives us fact. Faith gives us meaning. To me, this sounds very similar to a statement you attributed to Rob Bell earlier in the book that science tells us how, while faith tells us why. Of course, you stopped Rob Bell at that point and explained that science can explain meaning and beauty to us. Perhaps I'm misunderstanding, but the sets of statements, science gives us fact, faith gives us meaning, and science tells us how and faith tells us why, seem to be saying the same thing. What is the difference between the statements, or how did your stance about these statements change so that you ended up accepting them rather than criticizing them? Thanks, Nate. Well, Nate, thank you for such a thoughtful question about my book, Finding On the Waves, which came out one year ago today, the day this podcast is released, September 13th. Man, I can't believe that book has been out a year. It has been a wild year. Uh, That is an event that really changed my life. Uh, A lot of people told me releasing a book is no big deal. It doesn't change a lot. It changed everything for me. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm a full-time author, podcaster now. Uh, I've traveled and met so many of you on the book tour. I really can't overstate the impact Finding God in the Waves had in my life. And I hope, dear listeners, the book has in some way impacted yours as well. By the way, the paperback comes out October 3rd with a discussion guide and a new low price. Uh, I looked on Amazon. The paperback is debuting at a much lower price than the hardback ever got to. So if, if, if cost is an issue on a hardback book, Finding Gone the Waves will be much more universally economically accessible October 3rd. Again, with that really cool discussion guide. But back to your question, science gives us facts, faith gives us meaning. Yeah, I do think that is actually different in substance from, you know, science tells us how, faith tells us why. Here's what I mean. Why can include fact. Why does the sunrise can be explained via science? The why is there. Why do we find sunrises beautiful? That can also be answered scientifically. Why do we fall in love? Why do we feel love? You see, those why questions are easily addressable via the scientific method, but at the end, they are still just facts. Understanding the astrophysics of a rising sun won't actually provoke you to any action in your day. Understanding the neurochemistry of your circadian rhythms in your sleep And wake cycles will not get you out of bed in the morning. Humans, as organisms, animals, with a narrative consciousness, find meaning in our narrative. And facts alone don't create a narrative map of the world. We find meaning in some arc across all of these That's not to say you can't create a life narrative of meaning and purpose without faith. I know too many atheists who have done so to deny the effectiveness of their secular worldview, but ultimately they are relying on some philosophy or worldview to create a narrative across scientific facts in order to find meaning in life. And my point is, that is the school faith belongs in. Personal philosophy, moral philosophy, and worldview that create a narrative that allow us to find meaning in that sun coming over the horizon. Find meaning to get out of bed. A purpose to strive toward beyond our survival impulses. For some reason, our species... Uh, doesn't do well just on a survival basis. We need more. And a narrative of a God who lovingly creates our universe and a Christ incarnate in Jesus but present cosmically that draws that entire creation toward reconciliation gives me meaning among the facts of science. But I don't let my faith question scientific fact. Science is the king of facts. My faith doesn't come into play questioning what science discovers. My faith tells me what I do with those facts. That's a little different, or I would say pretty radically different, than science telling us how and faith telling us why. Why is not necessarily associated with meaning. Now, what do we do with that? <laughs> I, I, I made that book to show how I journey through some questions, and it was more important for me to lead the reader on a journey of how I questioned things and how I started to construct a new worldview, less so that you would follow in my footsteps and more so that you would bravely and boldly embark on a journey of your own. That's what I wanted Finding God in the Ways to do. I've seen many people do that. Very common among people who listen to my podcast, listen to the Liturgist podcast, or uh, read my book, is the degree to which they are not becoming a clone of me. They're not duplicating my beliefs. They're not duplicating my approach. But they are enjoying solidarity on a journey of their own. And that has been incredibly, incredibly affirming to me in my life. So I would say to you, Nate, if science tells us how and faith tells us why and science gives us fact, faith gives us meaning, both fall short in how you assemble a story to live out, then it's time for you to craft your own language. It's time for you to give to the world the gift of sharing how you have struggled to learn to embrace the gift of life and awareness, wherever it comes from. This is a trigger warning. The next question is about suicide. So if that's something, a topic that may be upsetting to you, just go ahead and hit, hit pause on this episode. And uh, either listen in a, a space where you have people who can comfort and support you. Or just skip the rest of this episode and come back on as Science Mike 127.
1: Hello, Science Mike. I'm curious as to what is going on in the brains of suicidal people. I've had fleeting, dark thoughts before while feeling depressed, but I'm curious if there's a significant change in brain activity when someone actually makes the decision to end their life. Although, I don't know how that could be analyzed now that I think of it. Still, perhaps you have some insight. Also, can you talk about suicide from an evolutionary standpoint? I don't see how it makes sense from a survivalist slash natural selection standpoint. Thank you so much for you. Grace and peace, Andrew. P.S. I loved your Children of God sermon. It was awesome.
0: Okay. um, Let's start with the evolution stuff because that's the easiest part. Remember... Evolution via natural selection creates selection pressures against any genetic mutation that reduces reproductive livelihood or prevents offspring from reaching reproductive age. Uh, And we have to state the simple fact that suicide often happens after offspring are produced or even after offspring have reached reproductive age of their own. Uh, so evolution won't necessarily punish against it, or if it's completely genetic in nature, which is not. But if it were completely genetic in nature, if it was caused by, you know, a combination of recessive genes, uh, it would not get filtered against in the environment. The same way that a sickle cell anemia is not selected against effectively by evolution via natural selection. Evolution is not an engineer sitting in a whiteboard trying to architect a perfect solution. Evolution throws a lot of stuff against the wall, and what works wins. But that doesn't mean winning, as in survival of the fittest, the biggest, strongest, fastest. Evolution rewards survival of the most timely adaptations. Remember, fitness is suitability for a given environment. If food and water are very scarce... To be fast and strong creates a lot of wasted muscle mass, and perhaps the meek and lean survives until the next rainstorm. Now in terms of the neurological, cognitive, and psychological factors in suicide, one of the most compelling theories I've seen about suicide comes from Dr. Thomas Joyner at Florida State University. Florida State University. Uh, I can't believe I just mangled the name of the university in my town. (laughs) Uh, He has a a powerful, predictive psychological theory for when people will attempt suicide. Uh, Dr. Joyner sees three simultaneous factors being necessary for a given person to attempt suicide. Two out of three will lead you to a very dark place indeed, but not all the way to an attempt to take your own life. Here are those factors. One, if someone says, I feel like a burden on others, that's a big risk factor. You feel like uh, those you care for are harmed by your very presence. Number two, if you were to say, I don't belong, or if you experience no sense of social belonging, at isolation is a serious risk factor. And the third would be if you could say, I don't fear death or lethal self-harm. Interestingly enough, Dr. Joyner's theory explains why antidepressants can actually cause suicidal thoughts to turn to suicidal ideation to turn into suicide attempts because they distance people from the fear of death. They reduce the amygdala response to images or attempts of lethal self-harm. Three factors. I feel like a burden on others. I don't belong. I don't fear death or lethal self-harm. And um, from a little personal experience, as someone who has attempted suicide in the past, uh, that that's right on the money. I couldn't have articulated it better myself. Um, There was a time in my life where I felt like a burden on others, like I did not belong, and I certainly uh, did not fear death. Today, uh, I'm a much lower suicide risk because I only have one of those things. (laughs) I don't feel like a burden on others. Uh, I feel like I belong. I still don't feel death, fear death, or lethal self harm whatsoever. It's a little uh, weirdness in my wiring. Um, now, the neuroscience picture, as you alluded to in your question, isn't isn't so clear for obvious reasons. How do you have someone in a brain imaging situation the moment they decide to kill themselves? How could you image a brain that was about to die from self-inflicted harm? Ethically, you would have an obligation to prevent the act from occurring. Uh, but they do have one workaround. We can study the brains of people who've attempted suicide but survived. And interestingly enough, uh, we see a dramatically higher uh, degree of neurological arousal in certain regions of the brain uh, that show up as a sensitivity to emotional stimuli, especially displays of anger, consistently in the brains of suicide attempt survivors. Uh, We also have some studies that show an implementation in decision-making, or excuse me, an impairment in decision-making and executive function in some tests. Um, basically, uh, people who've attempted suicide don't learn trends over time that create a penalty for them. And I'll read you a quote from an article called The Suicidal Brain, which is linked to in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com this week. Here's the quote. MRI scans confirmed that something was amiss. The left lateral orbitofrontal cortex of the brain, which is associated with decision-making, lit up when healthy subjects chose the bad decks. This is a a gambling game they were doing. But in suicide attempters, the region was markedly less active. This and past behavioral studies seem to suggest that decision-making is impaired in numerous psychiatric disorders. So for whatever reason, uh, either from genetic inclination, environment, say, living with clinical or chronic depression, or both, there are possibly structural, functional differences in the brains of people who attempt suicide and those who do not. Since brain imaging scanners aren't all that common, I think Thomas Joyner's Cognitive psychological model is very helpful and should be more widely known Uh, because if people can assess for themselves where they're at with those three risk factors, you know, they might be able to ask for help. Or for people talking to someone who is in a very dark place, instead of saying, Are you suicidal? if you were to say, You know, tell me about how you feel, do you feel like you're a burden on others? do you feel like you belong? Do you fear death or self-injury? That might be a more useful diagnostic criteria to understand how risk someone is at for suicide. It's important research. Suicide is a growing cause of death uh, in many demographics. Uh, (laughs) It's becoming the leading cause of death, actually, in a couple of American demographics. And what a tragedy that is. The gift of life snuffed out because people can't find the will to go on. And I don't view that as pathetic. Don't hear that in my voice. Uh, I, I know what it is to want to end your life. I just think as a society and a culture, we need to get better at identifying, intervening, and aiding people who have reached that very dark place. Our last question came in via email. It reads, Hey Science Mike, so my parents believe in the New Earth theory of Christianity. I do not. I've been struggling with a lot of my beliefs about Christianity recently. So in a recent conversation with my dad about how they found a triceratops near our city of Thornton, Colorado, my dad proceeded to inform me about how there is a scientist who discovered by accident That DNA was found in dinosaur bones, which, according to these Christians, proves the New Earth theory because DNA decays too quickly to last millions of years. I read an article in Science Magazine which basically states that they can date DNA back over a 100 million years. Can you tell me how they can date DNA? and if their discovery of DNA and dinosaur bones should mean anything to New Earth believers. Thanks, Danielle. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for your question. And I think in this conversation with your dad, uh, some terms have gotten confused and intermingled. So let's, uh, let's tease that apart so we can understand the underlying scientific principles. And that'll aid you in doing further research, both for your own enlightenment and discussions with your father. By the way, my hope for you is that you and your dad could learn to enjoy these conversations as opposed to have an oppositional energy to them. As is often the case involving young earth or new earth creationism, the facts presented here have been misrepresented so yeah, absolutely. <laughs> quite quite miraculously, a Triceratops was found in a construction site near Thornton, Colorado, uh, and it was a very very significant finding. There's a Tyrannosaurus tooth in the animal. Um, it's a it's a it's a well preserved skeleton um, with a, a, a larger volume of the animal present than we typically find in a fossil recovery. Uh, But, and this is a big caveat, absolutely no DNA was recovered in that find. It was a typical fossil find. We don't find dinosaur DNA because, as alluded to in your question, DNA does not last for millions of years. The dating of those dinosaur bones, like all dinosaur fossils which aren't technically bones anymore, they're rocks now, happens via radiometric dating. Now there's a complete episode of radiometric dating in Ask Science Mike, episode 114, Hypnosis, High Roller Gals, and Humans Riding Dinosaurs. I've got a link to that in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. But a, a quick breakdown is that radioactive elements decompose or break down at predictable rates. We know how often statistically it occurs. So if you measure the ratio between parent and child elements or isotopes, that can help you figure out how old a given rock is. Now different elements work for different timescales, but all radiometric dating works best on what we would call geologic timescales. Hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Maybe some elements could give you tens of thousands of years granularity. Um, but it's not especially useful for like forensic dating, right? If there's a cadaver and you need to date the body, you're not going to use radiometric dating. You're going to look at the condition of organics, organic molecules uh, in that body. And you're going to look at the environment the body is in, and then you're going to be able to estimate how old a body is Um, with the obvious intuitive understanding that bodies change much faster than rocks. So DNA, an organic molecule, the code underlying all life on this planet isn't stable like a rock or even a radioactive element. The oldest DNA we've ever recovered is about 100,000 years old. It was preserved under ice, a a rare, rare uh, way in which organic material is preserved. It's not normal. Glaciers move. Glaciers migrate over time. Plate tectonics cause changes in climate. And uh, we were just lucky. I guess in theory, some scientists believe Perhaps in ideal situations, DNA could last a million years, but 100,000 years is exceptional. Ten times that uh, length of time would be more so. In hot, wet environments, DNA can break down in days or weeks, even hours in the right chemical conditions. So a fleshy dinosaur or a little bit of bone marrow would indeed be a momentous discovery for young Earth creationists. But that hasn't happened. Instead, every fossil we've ever discovered supports the dominant scientific picture that our Earth is billions of years old and that humans and dinosaurs are separated by millions of years of geologic time. On this planet. So you're questioning a lot of your beliefs about Christianity. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. I think as much as you can, it will help if you can preserve a healthy relationship with your parents through that process. Uh, but I, I also think don't be afraid of what you're learning. Don't let new insights lead you to a place of darkness and fear but instead joy, joy in all you can learn about the universe and creation. Science certainly undermines a young earth view of creation, uh, definitively so, I might say. But that doesn't mean that the meaning we find in the Genesis narrative isn't significant. It doesn't mean a God that creates with thought and intent and word instead of with violence, isn't a major theological innovation. The fact that Genesis says that God says it was good in regards to creation tells us the nature of the God we try to discover and unravel through Scripture. The relationship between humanity and God and temptation is expertly portrayed in the Genesis narrative. We all know what the whisper of the serpent sounds like we all know when fruit looks good <laughs> and we desire it but we know we shouldn't have it have it as you question you may find some of the historical and scientific grounding that you've placed in scripture and have confidence in may be eroded but i would encourage you to look to those higher themes of the bible of incarnation of resurrection, of a God that is love. And my hope for you is that you find those concepts beautiful and enduring, even as you question what you've previously known. I really want to see you. I really, really want to see you. So if I'm coming anywhere near you, at slash events. Come see me. If I'm not coming anywhere near you, get some friends together. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your professor. Send a booking request. I only do this because I like seeing you all, meeting you all, talking to you all. That is the animating energy behind my work. Thanks for listening to the show, as always. I want to thank my patrons on Patreon for making the show financially possible and for picking the questions that appear every week on Ask Science Mike. If you'd like to keep this show going, just go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the Patreon icon, and uh, you can throw me a dollar a month, five bucks a month. It makes a huge difference. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew Golucky, for uh, pre-producing the show. Greg Nordine for sound designing and producing. Jeff Otterford for writing the theme song. Thanks for listening, friends, and I will talk to you next week.